Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. So, last time we started having a look at how the situation was going in Rome at the start of the 10th century, using one of the more powerful families in the city, the Tuscolo family, as an example. We saw in particular how the daughter of the family, Marozia, was slowly building up her family's and her own power base, becoming friendly with men of power. One of these, rumor would have it, was Pope Sergius III, from whom, again, if we believe the rumors, she was expecting a son, when she married Alberic of Spoleto, another very powerful noble. The match between Marozia and Alberic seemed to be a good one. His poised and wise character was well balanced by her raw, sensual energy, and he soon came to rely on her uncanny judge of character and ability to read people's moods and intentions. One thing that she did straight away was convince her new hubby to fix his relations with another important Italian noble, Adalbert II of Tuscany, and his formidable wife, Bertha. That would have interesting developments later on, especially for our friend Marozia. But what about the Pope? Was he angry at losing his supposed mistress? Not really. It was all part of the power game after all. Plus, he died a year later in 911, and nothing makes your opinion on things irrelevant like you dying. After a couple of fill-in popes, Marozia's mother, Theodora, was missing her lover, John Giovanni of Tosignano, a place near modern-day Imola in Emilia-Romagna. And since she was in Rome, and he far away up in Ravenna, being the archbishop, a post which she had also got him, she thought it would be a good idea to bring him down to Rome. So, now that the main job was free, along came John, and he became Pope John Tenth. So, Theodora had her good friend in town, uh, but she wasn't at all jealous of him, indeed. To make sure that the family ties with the papacy continued, she encouraged her daughter, Marozia, to become friendly with the new Pope. For a while, everything went like clockwork, and the Pope played ball with Marozia's family. Marozia herself also had a second child in this period, this time more probably from her husband. Now, Pope Giovanni John had a bee in his bonnet about the Saracens. He just did not want them hanging around the peninsula. He was determined, in short, to boot the Muslims out of the boot. Now, you'll remember that they had dominated Sicily since the year 827, and now they also had a foothold in the mouth of the Garigliano River, about halfway between Rome and Naples. The Pope was quite successful in getting together an alliance of Italian Christians which laid siege to the Saracen encampment. The Muslims resisted for a while, but when their provisions started to run out, they made a sortie out to face the Christian troops, but were defeated. This event could have been an excellent opportunity for the rulers in Italy to learn what they could do when they were united, 
But alas, it was a lesson that Italy would not learn for another 950 years or so. With regard to Giovanni, being a hero sort of got to his head, and he started to gain a bit of independence from the Tuscolo family, from Theophylact, the father, Theodora, the mother, and Marozia. He even called his brother, Pietro, to deal with the more administrative and non-religious aspects of ruling the papal states, and poor old Theo actually fell into disgrace. He and his wife were getting on in years, although they were still intent on making their family as rich as possible. Marozia was having none of this. She intervened to show the Pope who was the real boss and remind him of how pleasant her company could be. And for her trouble, she was made senatrice, a senatrix, or the female version of a senator. Now, everything was a little too public, and you may remember that Marazzi actually had a husband. The guy could either oppose his wife's relationship with the Pope, or accept it. He sort of chose a third option, moving from Rome to Spoleto, where he could pretend he didn't know what was going on, and hope that when he was in town, Marazzi would at least keep up appearances. These were the years from 917 to 921 in which Marozia really started to dominate Rome and she also had a fourth son. Not quite sure who the father was but Pope John X was a potential candidate. She now understood that she could aim higher and that maybe, just maybe, she could be the founder of a dynasty, a wife and mother of kings of Rome, and perhaps even more than that. She got her chance for some more political play in 921, when she and her husband Alberic were called to Tuscany by Adalbert and Bertha to discuss the alliance against Berengarius, king of Italy, and by this time also Holy Roman Emperor, although it was an empty title at the time. All the cool Italians were there. Adalbert and Bertha of Tuscany, Hugo of Provence, Adalbert of Ivrea in the north, and his wife Ermengarde, and Rudolf of Burgundy. So, not really all Italians, but let's say all of the people with a vested interest in Italy. The very attentive listeners will remember that it was Ermengarde, years later, when her husband had died, who would apparently send Rudolf mad with jealousy. He may have first felt attracted to her during this little get-together. That wasn't the only falling in love that was going on. Hugo of Provence, 37 years old at the time, was there with his wife and children. One day, one day, fate would have it that he found himself alone with... Drum roll, please. Can you guess it? That's right, Marozia. It was in this little trip that she fell in love with him. Anyway, the anti-Berengarius alliance, as we know from two episodes back, was successful, and the king and emperor was defeated at Fiorenzuola, managing to escape by hiding under a shield on top of a pile of bodies. Unfortunately, 
Marozia was not able to participate in the celebrations because her husband, Alberic, had pulled out before the battle and she was left looking the fool, the wife of a coward. I could imagine how awkward it must have been when he came home, sort of, well, so how did the battle go? And him saying something like, um, in battle, um, you didn't forget the battle, did you? Well, you know, I was busy and something like that. She sought consolation in the arms of Hugo of Provence, who promised that he would leave his wife and family to marry her, but not just yet. Also, her husband still had a bit of a role to play in our story. After his defeat at Fiorenzuola, we know that Berengarius was assassinated in 926. That meant that the anti-Berengarius alliance, without the man himself, didn't make much sense anymore. However, there was another troublemaker to deal with, and that was the Pope, who meanwhile, with his brother, had once again started to act as if he didn't have to do everything that Marazzi and her crew wanted. Now how dare he? Alberic helped his wife out by heading back to Rome with an army and sent Giovanni packing. And for a while, husband and wife were back together again as a loving couple. This didn't last long, however, because the Pope soon came back and drove Alberic out. Alberic tried again with an army of Hungarians, Magyars we should say, but when the siege failed, he was killed. Marozia was now a widow. She took a look around to assess the situation. Italy was still deep in the anarchy we mentioned a few episodes ago. There was widespread corruption, infighting, intrigue and profound ignorance. Marozia herself, like many of her contemporaries, was illiterate. The culture of the time was dominated by vice and superstition. Whatever the situation... Marozia had a game to play, and that game was in Rome. Now, Pope John X was not stupid, and he knew that he was running quite a risk going up against Marozia's faction. So, he looked to Hugo of Provence for protection, luring him with the idea of the imperial crown. Marozia didn't miss a beat, and countered quite cleverly by offering herself to Hugo's brother, Guido, Guy, who had since become the Marquis of Tuscany, and he happily accepted. Marazia, as well as her own family power base in and around Rome, as well as being a senatrix, and as well as being the mother of the Duke of Spoleto, Alberic II, was now the Duchess of Lucca and the Marchioness of Tuscany, thanks to her marriage with Guido. In short, she had influence over practically all of central Italy. The first order of business for Marazia's new hubby in 928 was to march down to Rome and sort out the Pope. He entered the city, joined up with the Tuscolo family men and entered St. Peter's. They were about to take the Pope's brother, Peter, away when the Pope himself intervened and convinced them not to allowing him to escape. Marozia was livid, but soon Pietro showed up outside the city again with a bunch of Hungarians. Everybody's going to the Hungarians now. A battle ensued, 
and they were defeated by Guido and his mix of Tuscans and Romans, and Pietro was killed. His brother, Pope Giovanni X, was taken prisoner. With the ungrateful, pesky Pope behind bars, Marozia wanted to place another of her men on the throne of St. Peter, who would become Leo VI, which was a little tricky with the previous Pope still being alive. Well, wouldn't you know it, Pope John ended up dead, apparently accidentally having strangled himself. How wonderfully convenient that was. So, along came Pope Leo VI, who only lasted about six months, but no matter, there were plenty more where he came from. So, Morazia stuck another of her men on the throne, and that was Stephen VII. She was really at the height of her power now. She could place whoever she wanted as the highest representative of Western Christianity. Old Steve managed to last a couple of years from 929 to 931. That was just enough time for the next Pope in line to come of age, reaching a more acceptable 20 years of age for the papacy. But why would Marozia want a 20-year-old Pope? Surely there were enough old candidates lying around that could be propped up for a couple of years and then made to conveniently die when they weren't cooperating enough. Well, the reason was that the next Pope, who became John the Eleventh, was Marozia's son, possibly in turn the son of Pope Sergius III. Giovanni the Eleventh was the perfect son for Marozia, not rebellious at all and doing everything Mummy told him. In the same year, however, Marozia's second husband, Guido of Tuscany, died. But that wasn't going to slow her down. She now started looking around for a husband that could be king of Italy and that her son, the Pope, could then crown emperor, making her queen and empress. And therefore, she offered herself to the next man who could rise to the challenge, and that was Hugo of Provence. And just like that, their love story was on again. Hugo himself was fully on board with the idea, since Marozia was the key to the Italian and imperial thrones. Furthermore, his wife had conveniently died in the meantime. However, there was a problem. He and Marozia were brother and sister-in-law, and according to the laws of the church, they could not get married. No matter. In those times, church rules were far from worrying anyone, especially the clergy. He simply, spontaneously declared himself to be a bastard, switched in the cradle at birth, and hey presto, they weren't brother and sister-in-law anymore. The only remaining issue was, would the Pope buy it and give his assent to the marriage? Well, of course he would. The Pope did everything his mum wanted, and now... Mum wanted to get married and then become queen and empress. She was almost there. The finish line was just in view. Even though, knowing Marozia, she would probably not have stopped there. Hugo came down to Rome with an army from Provence that also included a good number of Burgundians. You know, just in case. Better to be safe than sorry and all that. 
When he arrived with his whopping great army, Marozia convinced him to leave it outside of the gates. Again, just in case. The two were married, and soon after they would also be crowned. The two were married, and soon after they would also be crowned, and everyone was happy, and everything was peachy, That's for everyone that was still alive, obviously. Only everyone wasn't happy, and everything wasn't peachy, particularly one of Marozia's other sons, Alberic II, Duke of Spoleto was not pleased at all. Although Marozia saw a bright future for her children in a picture that also included her new husband, her son, Alberic, didn't see it that way at all. The situation was not helped by the fact that Guido, her new husband, was already acting as if he were emperor, and he was not a humble future emperor at all, treating everybody with great arrogance. The tension and hate between the two men grew. But Marozia, but Marozia was confident that in time things would get sorted out and that Guido could help out her children as well as his own and her son Alberic would fall in line. It was ironic that a woman who had built a formidable power base thanks also to her uncanny judge of character and ability to almost read men's minds would fail when it came to understanding her own son. But isn't that often the way things go? Sources differ on what the actual last straw was, but it seems to have involved something to do with water or some other liquid. Alberic was ordered by Hugo to pour him some, let's say, water, and Alberic either accidentally or on purpose slopped water all over the future emperor. Hugo vehemently reprimanded him in public, and the young man stormed out into the city. He must have had pretty good oratory skills, because he found some rabble to rouse, as well as some more significant nobles. The angle he used was the one that had worked like a charm throughout all human history, blame the foreigners, which was made even more effective with a huge foreign army sitting outside the gates. Alberic then took his new, let's say, army and laid siege to Castel Sant'Angelo, where Marozia and Hugo were staying. Hugo legged it during the night, in shame, leaving his crown and his wife behind. Alberic then took the castle and became the sole ruler of Rome. Just like that, in a matter of hours, the power base that Marozia had been building for decades was gone. The woman who had reached almost as high as one could reach in those divided, violent times disappeared from the books of history. There'll be no episode next week because I'm going to be on holiday, but I'll try and do a bit of filming and see if I can't do a little video for you. We're going to Tuscany to the seaside, so there'll be plenty of interesting things to see there. As always, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thanks to listener Adrian T. from Australia. Always great to hear from our Australian friends for writing in and giving us a lovely review. Thanks very much for that. Thanks to our new Patreon supporter, Roberta or Roberta, and obviously to our faithful friends, Sen and Sean. 
Remember that if you would like a bit of light reading during the summer, we have our sponsor, which is me,、uh, with the book、uh, "The K Rock Chelsea Hotel," which you'll find on the site or on、uh, Amazon. It's a、uh, it's a short book, so however it goes, it will be short and relatively painless to read. If you want, remember, if you want to get in touch, you can send an email: hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can also find and click through to our social media, Facebook and YouTube. And if you're feeling really generous, make a donation. Meanwhile, thanks very much again to everyone for listening. Until next time, arrivederci. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts! Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E Media.com and find out how to submit your show.